Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Washington State is about to tax high earners. Welcome to Friday, and we're going to discuss this major news on capital gains tax and the rest of the week's developments with Seattle Times Investigations Editor Jonathan Martin. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Axios Seattle reporter Melissa Santos. Hi, Melissa. Hi there. KUOW online editor and producer, blog writer, Dyer Oxley. Welcome. Good afternoon. And you can stream this show on YouTube and Facebook and watch it happen. So how many times on this program have we told you Washington is a supposedly progressive state with America's most regressive tax system? We don't tax people on their high incomes. Our Constitution doesn't allow an income tax. Well, this morning, as we record this, Friday this morning, our state Supreme Court ruled that the new capital gains tax passed by the legislature is allowed. Melissa, our state attorney general called this the most progressive change in Washington tax policy in generations. True? I mean, that's true because they haven't really done much yeah. <laughs> for the past that's you know, 90 That's why we've been years. saying it for yeah. years. I mean, I guess that's true um, because it does mean that if you're selling a lot of stock or whatever um, over a certain amount, over 250000 in profit in a year, you have to pay taxes on that. Yeah. So for those listeners who haven't been following this, briefly, what is this capital gains tax? Who pays and why? They estimate that the, it's a really small percentage. I think they they think it's under like 1% of people will pay it. Um, but those estimates come from maybe Department of Revenue. But um, basically, it's if you sell a bunch of assets, you know, this is like stocks. It could be like expensive artwork. I have a lot of that at home. I don't know if sure. Sure you do. <laughs> yeah, um, I've seen it. It's a, it's a breathtaking. Right. And then if you sell that and gain profit from it, you, you have to pay some tax on that. And that's only if it's you get more than 250000 a in a year from yeah. that. and. Okay, one more question for you, then I'll open it up further. This this capital gains tax, as I said, passed a couple of years ago by the legislature, has been challenged in court, called unconstitutional, called an income tax. Why did this court rule seven to two in favor of the capital gains tax? Well, they really sided with the state on this, and the state has argued all along. And the legislature, I mean, at least the Democrats in the legislature, said it's an excise tax. So basically, they're saying it's like a sales tax kind of thing, like it's a sale on a transaction. This isn't an income tax because you tax. have to sell something to yeah. have capital gains. And the and the and the, the majority said, "Yep, this this whole all of our provisions in the Constitution regarding you know income taxes, and you can't." Uh, you can't uh, tax one group higher than another. Those don't apply because this isn't this isn't a property tax. It gets into some some weeds there with some old precedents. But basically, yeah. not a property tax, not income tax, not doesn't apply. I was struck by uh, that they, this did not immediately open the door to an income tax, but the justices and the way they wrote it made it clear that they would probably welcome one. Um, there was a very long section of the opinion that went re- deep in the history of taxation policy, and it kind of cast uh, cast some shade on previous Supreme Court rulings. Um, it basically kind of summarized as things change. Um, we have, you know, we had the nineteen thirties era Supreme Court ruling that really set the benchmark uh, standard for taxation of um, income is property, and there's a limit in the, under the state constitution about um, of uniformity of taxation of property. 
So um, this one, you, you know, can't tax people with a lot of it and not tax most correct. people you you know, at all. Mm-hmm. You can't right. do that. And, you explain it better than I did. Thank you. Jonathan. <laughs> well, and, you know, the, the whole point of um, income taxes is you do tax people at different uh, different incomes levels differently. So um, what about a flat tax? I, so I well, I know there's a one percent cap on property increases. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a tax expert. I would not <laughs> pretend to play one. But I did notice the politics of this ruling was also interesting, in that the the it was kind of an unusual ruling with a lot of value judgments. Kind of the had a legislating from the bench kind of feel that we hear a lot about the U.S. Supreme Court, frankly, right now. But this is legislating from the left. Um, it used the words regrettable tax policy. There's one line I, I flagged that Washington's upside down tax system perpetuates systemic racism by placing disproportionate tax burden on BIPOC residents. Right. And whether and, you agree with that or not, that's separate. That seems more separate like a, from whether it's an income tax or an right. excise It reads tax. more like a political statement and less like a judicial one. Mm. At the same time, I was a little um, I was struck that they didn't go farther, like you said in the beginning, like the opponents of this tax had been saying it's an unconstitutional income tax. Here's why. Under this 1930s court ruling, they just left that 1930s tax court ruling alone Yeah, because they could have said, no, we don't think that in getting in the weeds again, but income is property. And we don't think that they could have just kind of been like, we overturned that decision. Yeah, you income tax is cool. Yeah, exactly. And they did not do that. So I think they were kind of straddling a line there. Um uh, in a way, we despite all that stuff that was in there. And um, yeah, so some progressives are, are, would have wanted more, I think, from this. Mm-hmm. I think this is the reason we're here to the point that you just made is because nearly 100 years ago, there was another decision in the 1930s. And, you know, sorry for listeners when things get like so wonky in stories like this. I always feel bad covering them, but <laughs> it really does go bad uh, back to 1930s, a decision that said income is property. And ever since then, Washington has been layering and layering and layering laws. So other points that we have to point out, you can only cap taxes on property at 1%. Uh, The solution, the grand solution to this would be to go and fix the Constitution and just go to the source. That's a lot harder to do than what we're doing right now, which is why we're here. Mm Kind of doing some legal finagling to get around and make – a capital gains tax. There's also a political problem in that mm-hmm. Washington Washingtonians have rejected, um, a, you know, coming up to an income tax. Income yeah. tax is not popular. Multiple it's a ballot times. issue. Yeah, it's not. So it's interesting. In, in I think in a, in progressive Seattle and maybe King County and progressive circles, this feels like a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, if you if your goal is to have a tax policy that is healthy and robust and also more equitable, but um, I, I don't know what – I'd be interested to see what the polling would look like on an income tax again. Um, I thought that the capital gains tax was more – even though it's – you know, the argument has been it's a nose under the camel, a camel's nose under the tent. Mm-hmm. That, um, it's, but it's more popular than, uh, than an income tax. Do you feel that Arizona is about to get 7,000 more residents at this point? <laughs> Or right, Texas or Florida. <laughs> that's, that's the argument. The, the opponents yeah. are are saying, "Well, say goodbye to people who have capital gains above a quarter million dollars because yeah. they don't want to be in Washington anymore." Do you think? Do we think that's true? I think there's. I mean, I understand the logic behind that argument because I mean, let's let's be honest here. Aside from Melissa's artwork that she has at home, um, <laughs> if you're dealing with profits over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in stocks and bonds, um, you're just living in a different reality. 
Yeah, and by the way, and more so because this ex, this law exempts retire uh, yeah. sales through your retirement accounts. It exempts home uh, property yeah. property sales, yeah. home sales. Exactly, but I mean, if you're in that arena of profits on stocks and bonds. I could see a lot of you know jumping and skipping. Oh yeah, I'll just go. I'll just put my residency at my summer home in X state well, or something. And there's like a lot that. of Washington is only one of like a handful. I don't know. I think five states that don't yeah. have an income tax, something and mo- like a lot that. of other states that don't have an income tax do have a capital gains tax. And then you have a state like California, where that has a, a very high income tax and a very high capital gains tax. So Texas is obviously the one that you know Texas and I think Boise are the two places I've yeah. heard people moving for tax reasons, but. Um, you know, there's Washington is still even with this is a very favorable state if you're very rich. Okay, should we put a pause there? And uh, one final question that Dyer asked is: Could this go to the U.S. Supreme Court? Which might you might think, well, that's a Washington state issue, but it could be seen as a an international or a, an, an uh, interstate commerce issue. If I was a lot smarter, I, I would know the answer to that question. I, I really would like to to pick the brain of a lawyer, but. Yeah, um, it's because if it's if it's the sale of an asset, well, right. your bank could be in New York, exactly. and you're here, which was part it... of the lawsuit is saying that this violates some interstate policies and, and laws. Yeah. In which case, I don't know the 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 stage for that going to the U.S. Supreme Court with the court that we have now, and the fact that every other state in the United States plus the IRS says capital gains is income. Yes, I don't know how that would turn out. Yeah. Okay, we'll uh, we'll see what happens next on the capital gains tax, but it's it's being implemented for now, as in this year's th- this yeah. uh, by the April tax deadline. They, they're they, going to try to. It's in the budget. Yeah, I think they're banking the revenue for this. Yeah, budget. they um they 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 had the law never was put on pause during this entire case, and so all, there's going to be payments coming in next month on this right. from people. Five hundred million a year, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, every yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It's yeah. a lot of money. For schools. Okay, let's talk about uh, KOW's Week in Review here. And we have another, uh, this is a federal court ruling to discuss. This is about the rights of Seattle home renters and the rules that Seattle can impose on landlords. So a few years ago, the Seattle City Council prohibited landlords from asking about a prospective tenant's criminal history and banned landlords from denying someone a home solely based on their criminal record. Well, landlords sued saying they have a legitimate interest in a tenant's criminal past and a free speech right to ask them about it. This week, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with half of that. Uh, who, who wants to start us on this court ruling? I could, I could throw something out there because I, I feel like uh, it reflects my feelings on this, and it's kind of a wash in a way. I'm not sure if anything's really going to change in Seattle as a result of this. It basically comes down to you can ask about... a potential tenant's previous criminal record. However, you cannot use a previous criminal record in your decision-making to rent them. Right. So I don't know where that leaves any any landlord out there in Seattle in their decision-making. So it, it kind of knocks down Seattle's law, but kind of does not. I find it curious. There's, there is similar legislation to this in uh, called ban the box, which in, in, in for employment purposes. So you can't ask somebody about their criminal record until a certain point in the employment process, you can ask. You can ask run somebody's criminal history. I think after you get past initial screening, and mm-hmm. and I was interesting here. They there was a kind of a the ordinance was written as a blanket ban. You can't you can't talk about criminal history at all. So um, I, it was interesting to let the city council could have just basically 
cut and pasted out of the state law or it's um, or the city the city um, banned the box legislation as well in an approach that had already been withstood judicial review. And I think that kind of goes to some of the criticisms about the city council in that it landlords have said they're they're uncertain where the council is going to go next. That uncertainty then drives people out of the market. You know, the criticism of the city council legislating with ideology and not practicality in mind. Mm-hmm. Can I throw something out there as a, as a question? Because you say practicality in mind. And this is an observation I've made about our Seattle city councils. It seems that a lot of stuff that passes through Seattle, we pass X bill and then inevitably a lawsuit is filed. And then maybe we, that thing stands, maybe half of the law stands. Is this just kind of the way of Seattle doing business? Just do something and then we'll just see how it works in the court? I, I think kind of. Yeah, I think they do try and test the court a lot. Like they did that with a, a high earners tax actually recently yeah. that um, that the ruling kind of came back halfway. They said, no, you can't you, you can apply a flat tax that is one percent to everybody, but you can't do it this way. You can't just like oppose it just on the wealthy people. So they do try that quite a bit. And um, I think yeah. that the, the state actually watches that um, and says is so it's like a test ground. And I think there's some collaboration in there actually between liberals sort of in the state to see if Seattle's policy will pass muster yeah, and we, what happens then. I remember back in the day there was a ban on uh, firearms in parks, which violated the state's um, mm-hmm. preemption clause for firearm legislation. And there was – and also we've done all kinds of stuff with election um, election campaign finance and support and like democracy vouchers that it goes – everything's been – goes to the court. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, it is kind of a playground, testing ground for – Progressive policy. That's the state. ninth city council member, the court. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the fifth beetle. Okay, so from a, a legal perspective, the landlord said the First Amendment protects their right to ask questions relevant to their livelihoods. So if knowing whether someone has a criminal record is relevant to their livelihood, why can't they base their rental decision on it? There's an anti discrimination provision, I think. That yeah. that's, I think that possibly the fear is. Okay, you can't legally do anything with this information, but does it cloud somehow your decision making anyway? I think there must be some sort of concern in the background there because legally it doesn't really like change anything in a way because you still can't use the information. Yeah. But it was a free speech issue. They said that you can't ban people from asking stuff and talking about stuff, you know, in that way. Um, but maybe maybe there's a fear that it still kind of influence decisions if they are ask about it, um, even if they're not allowed to use the information. The backdrop here is landlord frustration with uh, Seattle uh, mm-hmm. imposing some of those restrictions. And our housing reporter, Joshua McNichols, reported that uh, it is hard to draw a direct line because so- some landlords, they'll say, we have all got an exit strategy. We're dropping out of the market. It doesn't make sense for us. And that's not good for renters. Um, and Joshua reported that although it's hard to pin down direct reasons for these things. It's true that Seattle's landlord scene by the numbers has gotten, he says, distinctly less mom and pop and a lot more corporate. Yeah, it was really interesting reporting by Josh. Um, yeah, the number of people that had left the landlords that had left the market and the ones and, the, and were the equal to the new units coming on, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, I think the um, uh, the Again, going to the kind of the breadth of the approach of the of the background check um, ordinance, and I mentioned before, the kind of, this is the kind of thing that makes landlords 
concerned, like what's going to happen next? There's as part of this same criminal background check ordinance, there's also a first in time, first in line uh, element that my friends were landlords said it was just crazy for them because if somebody met criteria, uh, they would have to take the first person in line. Um, and I think it causes chaos for people trying to rent too. Uh, yeah, I was getting up early doing calisthenics <laughs> just to get there first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, that's why I'm looking at the thing from the landlord's point of view. You said some of it you think is maybe bad for renters too, but there's plenty of reason why that, you know, sure. who's got the power in this? Well, there's you know, certainly a ton equation. of protections for eviction, eviction yes. protections and yeah. like rent stability. Uh, they can, you can have to only a certain amount of, I believe, a certain amount of uh, rent increase a year now. Yeah. Um, as moving assistance, if your landlord ups and decides to sell, um, a lot of protections for renters that are new, which I can appreciate as a city, it's half rental renters now. Yeah, right. um, there's a good reason for it. One more thing before we take a break. Did you know there's a movement among uh, not all, but many landlords to call themselves housing providers instead? Uh, Roger Valdez, director for Seattle for Growth, uh, said the term landlord sounds archaic, feudal, like something out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it doesn't reflect the partnership that can be between tenant and housing provider. You're all journalists. Do you use landlord or housing provider? Would you switch? I use landlord just because no one knows what the heck you're talking about. If you say housing yeah. provider, the only time I do that, if it's like a nonprofit that's building affordable housing, sometimes I'll say housing provider for it's like a really large group. But if it's like someone who owns a building who's renting it or someone renting out their townhome, like I still use landlord just for clarity because you don't have to spend two sentences explaining what you're so talking So it's not about. because providers suggest you're doing it out of the goodness of your I mean, heart, whereas lords suggest you've got all the power? <laughs> I mean, Lord. some some words are just words we've used historically yeah, that a certain yeah. way, and it's like sometimes we need to reevaluate those words. But I'm not sure landlord is one of those exactly. Mortgage meant death pledge. So, <laughs> oh yeah, mortality mortgage. Yeah, wow. that's a good one. Words. I, I think words should probably evolve more naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, landlord is not really keeping me up at night, and I mean, this is saying as someone who is millennial-ish. In the Seattle area, ergo, I don't own anything. Uh-huh. I rent. And uh, I've never felt too lordly renting in, in Seattle. So I, the term fits for me. You've never felt renting. Renting. You have never felt lordly. No. The landlord clearly held that yes. held that position. Yes. Right? Okay. Well, I do. Uh, there is there is some interesting back and forth about this. In fact, uh, Joshua, again, our housing reporter, talked to a local housing provider, their preferred term. And she said, a grocer charges money for food. We don't call them a food lord. <laughs> um, that's true. And do we, do, should we refer to people however they want to be referred to? Yeah. I think we could come right? up with a better term because there's, mm. there's a bunch of parents out there that are like, I guess we're housing providers now, yeah. you know, <laughs> putting that out there. Well, I do a series every Monday in this podcast feed, in the Week in Review feed, called Words in Review. I've looked into iconic, legendary dive bar exodus. So I'm asking you, listener, landlord or housing provider or something else, and why? Email me at bradkey at org. That's B-R-A-D-K-E. At KUOW.org, because I'm the email lord, apparently, who, uh, who reads those and makes those <laughs> powerful decisions. Uh, and uh, we'll have a next uh, Words in Review coming up on uh, on Monday. Let's take a break. We've got more to talk about, like maybe no uh, light rail hub in the heart of Chinatown. We'll be right back.
Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and our journalist panel this week is KUOW's online editor, Dyer Oxley, Axios Seattle reporter, Melissa Santos, Seattle Times investigations editor, Jonathan Martin. More big news to pass on. Sound Transit is deciding where to put its new transit hub, light rail hub, to link up the future line to West Seattle and Ballard. A lot of people who live and work in Chinatown International District objected to another station there. Last night, the Sound Transit Board voted 15 to 1 in favor of a station outside the ID. Maybe two of them. It's not a final vote, but what is most important about this? I think the question of, you know, communities of color have had a lot of impacts that are negative from transportation in the past, from building freeways, from, um, in this case, there's been construction projects in in the Chinatown International District, and there's people bristling at, hey, wait, our businesses are going to have to be inconvenienced for another 10 years by another construction project. Mm -hmm. And so that's a concern that, for instance, the mayor has expressed um, a lot. But then the other side is it's like, well, maybe build, building in a different spot could make the entire system less convenient for riders forever, you know? So balancing those, I think, is difficult. Uh, balancing those concerns is difficult, and that's what they're grappling with right now. Yeah, if you were just designing purely for efficiency, you would put it at Union Station, right? You've mm-hmm. got the current the one-line station there. You've got the Sounder train, Amtrak, streetcar, the buses, uh you don't make east side riders backtrack to get where they're going. It's, it would be Grand Central Station. So you'll be very crowded. And once again, you'd be tearing up the International District. The the quite, There's two things that loom over this. One, it was interesting. Bruce Harrell um, talked in a very personal level about how his family was had businesses in, um, in the Chantana National District. It was really heard... Uh, really reflected the sentiment of that community, which is oftentimes really overlooked and has, um, in recent, in the pandemic, really made a lot of noise about how um, it was being neglected. Um, the other thing is, it seems like every decision Sound Transit makes is the most expensive possible one. Mm. <laughs> two stations, <laughs> so, Yeah, so they're going to do two stations, that, you know, one at the Pioneer Square and then probably one south of there. We're also talking about now tunneling to Ballard, tunneling to West Seattle, um, you know, it just everything Sound Transit does is just like maximum cost. And I, you wonder how it all happens. I, I trust my colleague, Mike Winbloom uh, at the Seattle Times to, to break this stuff down. But uh, it doesn't ne- it makes me just wonder how much more this is going to cost. Well, and that's why I think this is not really a final. Um, I mean, besides it not being a final vote, like I do think this could change again if the cost estimates come in like so high that it's like we got to go back to voters for more money or something. That could really affect and be like the um, decision that's ultimately made. It just and it also reminds me. Um, 
this is me dating myself, but of the viaduct discussions like 15 years ago, it's like I feel like there were stories written like, no tunnel, there's no tunnel, the tunnel's dead. I even wrote one of them, I think. And then we're going to do an elevated highway again, just a replacement or a surface. And then we have a tunnel now, right? I've ridden in that dead tunnel. Right. right. I mean, that we have a tunnel now after all. So it could be one of those things where it vacillates back and forth a few more times. I got to say, my sympathy is I've I've always kind of understood – the voices coming out of the CID because the, one of my I'm one of the grumpy voices that critiques Seattle for the fact that we kind of don't really preserve a lot of anything and everything going up new is sorry not sorry it's a little ugly so I'm one of those voices and it's you can't really deny that that neighborhood in particular has a very specific historical personality it's got a history there and it has kept itself close knit throughout the decades I'm not sure we could say that about many other neighborhoods in Seattle some maybe not all uh and I I just previously lived in Roosevelt while that station was going up and it is a disruption to your neighborhood and you have a big fence that's walling it off. It looks great now and there's a lot more foot traffic now. But I got to say, yeah, I kind of get the logic and the argument of if you plant this in the middle of our community, it it could shake things up. I understand that fear, I guess I should say. One of the challenges, the regional transit system – I mentioned everything seems to be the most expensive version. You heard, um, you know, the the Snohomish County Executive and the Pierce County Executive who are both on the board and looking at making sure that the lines get all the way down to north and south as were promised. Um, I think that it, that's one of the challenges for the Sound Transit is to making sure that, you know, the promises made, promises kept for the scope of the system, even as they're making the having these sort of. Uh, individual level um, kind of turf wars and um, complicated political discussions. Yeah, do what you're going to do, but don't spend all your money in Seattle. Yes, exactly. Nothing left for us. Okay, so as we said, um, not a final decision, just a a leaning um, maybe. Uh, So we'll see what happens next with this. um, That's a fascinating sound transit uh, conundrum. And uh, speaking of how we get around, one more item before we take another break. The city of Seattle this week reported that its new automated cameras caught drivers getting around illegally in Seattle bus lanes more than 110,000 times last year, including, let's see my list here, <laughs> Melissa <laughs> Santos and yeah. uh, Jonathan Martin's kid. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's bad. I should not have been in a bus lane. I will say that um, it is a kind of staggering number of people who have been in the bus lanes because this is only five places where they're monitoring this. Mm-hmm. It's not every single spot in every bus lane. Um, in my in my defense, I will say that the camera on Aurora and Gaylor Street, which catches the most people, um, is like right as the bus lane ends, so it's kind of easy to get in there if you're trying to take a turn, right turn mm-hmm. coming up, and you forget uh, where the roads are, like I do. <laughs> so, so you're saying you got in a little early, I got just in a to little play early. It safe. I know where I want to be. There's no bus around me. Yeah, but you know you shouldn't be in the bus lane, so I'm not gonna like. I got a warning. I haven't done it a bunch of times. You get a warning the first time you do it, so I'm warned. Do I they take into, so when they're deciding? Is it just well, you get one warning and the next time a ticket, or do they? Or is someone making a human judgment? Well, you know, there was no buses around, and I could see why she would do this. That's not egregious. Theoretically, there, I mean, they, there is like a human element, like that goes through the police department. Like it's not just an auto stamp, but I don't think they're looking with that granularity no. at this at all. Especially because it's not like a, even a right turn situation where you're kind of stopped, and it's like you're in the bus lane or you're not. So I don't think um, 
they're probably giving people a dispensation like that. That sounds right. I'm I'm with you in in if I heard you correctly. I personally I find those bus lanes a little confusing, and yeah. I feel like they're banking on that confusion <laughs> as yes. a money. Well, you I can't mean, take right turns from the bus lane. So You're allowed a, to take right you turns. Are you yeah. saying but it's a money making scheme? Well, to I, I, I do feel. <laughs> It's hard not to feel that sometimes when they set up these camera programs, they're a little predatory in a way. And I, I, I have mixed feelings. On one hand, bus lanes like this are where I want the city to move. I want there to be more bus capacity in the city. On the other hand, I don't know how I feel of depending on people to commit crimes in order to fund transportation. They they made over $800,000 between March and December of last year. Half goes to the state, half goes to the city. And they use that for transportation funding. It's it's it goes into those sin tax debates that we have. You yeah. know, we we got all this money because people are drinking really unhealthy sugary beverages, but we're buying healthy food because of it. You know, we got all this transportation money, but people have to commit a violation just to even get there. So you know who agreed with you, Uh-oh. Tim Iman. Tim, Tim uh, Iman took a hard to run. Me. No, at don't red do this. To me. I, I, wonder, I wonder if it makes sense to do it during rush hour times, you know, like certain hours of the day, because there are definitely, I think there are people who maybe zoom in the bus lane, see an open zone, and go for it um, when it is a real problem and is going to like delay a lot of people trying to use public transportation, and mm, that's yeah. bad for the system. But like at like 11, I don't think there's an hours distinction. Like, Nine in the morning, you know, nine in the morning on a Saturday when there was no one around, you know, I don't know. So maybe maybe there's some nuance they could do there. They're also looking at how many people from out of the out of Seattle are getting these tickets. Mm -hmm. That's part of what report they're going to do, because maybe it's just people who are like, I don't I I don't know. I'm in downtown Seattle. I don't know. And and that's maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's on my way in this morning. I saw somebody with the Vancouver or the uh, B.C. plates um, just strolling down the bus lane. Like, oh, that's not going to end well for you. Seattle's not alone in this. I mean, it's not the same, but they do have similar bus lanes out in Bellevue, you know, and I've I found myself in. Similar confusion in, in those times, especially when it comes to those turns. I don't know when I'm supposed to get in. The, or the one on Fourth Avenue, where like it's only a block long in front of Westlake Park, it's like requires you to do the slalom turn. It's yeah. like it's absolutely. But I, one thing I wanted to um, reading this this piece by Melissa, um, it, I was reminded of the my colleague Danny Westneat did a column recently about the lack of traffic enforcement overall in Seattle mm-hmm. in the pandemic. Uh, and he had an interesting stat that it was like 40,000 tickets were given out annually in like the 2010s. And in the 2022, it was uh, uh, 3,800. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how much anybody drives, but like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like an old man now, but like, I feel like traffic's getting worse. Like the traffic drivers are getting worse. People are just are like absolutely bonkers. Well, and that's why I think there's people using the bus lanes in yeah. a way that's really not good. So, like, I don't – I wouldn't be like, no cameras, it infringes our privacy necessarily because it's like, well, get, stay out of the bus lane, Well, right? do we know whether since they've gone – you know, you get a warning and then you get a ticket as these 110,000 violations, as as the city's been ticketing more, is it reducing the bus lane violations? Do I don't we think we quite have the data quite yet on that because I was asking the same question when writing the story. Uh, I think they are looking to see if it declines over time. They did say that they will look at that as sort of an evidence of changing behavior. But I think we need a couple more years of data to see uh, a little bit. Anecdotally, I just, you know, back up your statement about whether people are driving worse or better. I think there's something to be said that I don't know what it was about the pandemic. And again, anecdotal, 
Yeah, I think there have been some lax driving habits going on out on the road. I, every time I drive in to the office, I, I, I see at least one road rage chase going on on the freeway. Yikes. And yeah, I mean, it gets scary out yeah. there. And then, yeah, there are a lot of folks just making weird The pedestrian turns. deaths are clearly up. It's like there, in- Yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, I mean, if you have thoughts, uh, email Bill. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forward them to Dyer Oxley <laughs> today so far uh, blog okay um, let us pause there uh, we are going to take a break and we have brought up in a way this this next issue in a, in a couple of ways talking about what we save the history we preserve and don't preserve um, we're going to talk about a decrepit memorial when we come back on Week in Review We may be red in the face when you go to YouTube or Facebook and stream this uh, program. We're doing Week in Review, and we've got a lot to tell you about this week. I'm here with Axios Seattle reporter Melissa Santos, Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin, and KUOW online editor and producer Dyer Oxley. And this week, the city of Seattle and Seattle Public Schools announced they're looking to tear down and replace Memorial Stadium at Seattle Center. They're looking for a private partner to invest, design, build, operate, maintain, and manage it. Jonathan, Memorial Stadium is homely, but it works. <laughs> I've seen concerts and soccer games there. Graduations happen there. Why? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to ugly shame the stadium. Okay, um, but uh, the the discussion about replacing it has gone back to apparently the '60s. Um, there has been at least the last three mayors have signed partnership deals with Seattle Public Schools to. Uh, replace or redevelop it. Um, you know, the uh, and the the city clearly wants to uh, replace it. Um, a former Seattle Center director called it the a gap, uh, a what is it, a missing tooth in the smile of the Seattle Center. Um, <laughs> but um, the one of the hiccups, I believe, has been that there it's been kind of yoked to um, for the Seattle Seattle schools, which owns the stadium, wants a downtown school. And so there's been a kind of a, uh, a a partner, a marriage of these two interests: Seattle Center wanting to fill the missing tooth, and the Seattle School District wanting to have an elementary school downtown where there's been so much growth in residential population. So there would be there, a school where the stadium is. No, there the the agreement signed by Durkin um, for replacing you said one of these a chain of uh, agreements. Um, gave the Seattle School District uh, a rights to the Battery Street Tunnel North entrance. Remember when they took the the, t- the Battery Street Tunnel down, there's a big chunk of land there in Belltown. In Belltown, yes. That's apparently big enough for a pretty good-sized school. And mm-hmm. the Seattle School District has rights there through, I believe, 2031. Okay. Um, but um, I think that's been one of the challenges in getting something that everybody agrees it's not a great functional stadium. It's like kind of walls off part of the Seattle Center in a weird way if you've been kind of over by the Mopop Museum and trying to get in there. Um, it's not – it's just not a – it's not a very great facility. So that's been, I think, one of the challenges in getting that replaced. Well, what about – is this supposed to bring in more money for the children in some way, this private partner designed, built, enhanced – well, I think, I think that's part of the, the RFP process is to see what kind of partners will come come to the table. Um, 
I think as putting on my investigations editor hat, I'd want to make sure that the subsidies for a public-private partnership don't all fly to the private side and not the public side. Right. It's a prime piece of property. Um, presumably, they're going to be able to – I think they're going to get – part of the deal is they're going to have naming rights, private naming rights, that I believe would go to the private developer. Um, so there's money on the table. Obviously, next door, um, the Oakview Group just redeveloped uh, the – Climate Pledge Arena, and it's a beautiful facility and very, very successful. Um, so there are people apparently very interested in this site. But I want to make sure that, to answer your question, Bill, that actually it's not the school district that is getting um, losing out on this. You just hit on something that is a curiosity of, of mine because the, the thing that stands out on this whole issue is the naming part. Mm. And I know they have to keep memorial in the title. That's part of it. But could you say that again? Who gets the rights to name it and the developer, right? But can they sell that off? I believe, is that how they would make money? I believe that I, – I hope I'm not um, committing an error on live, uh, live radio. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I believe that's the case. I believe that okay. it's part of that they can sell naming rights. So I, we could end up with like Starbucks – Memorial, Molly Moon's Olive Memorial. Olive Oil Arena. Olive Oil Arena. Yeah, Olieto Arena. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't get me started on that translation. <laughs> okay, Olive Oil in a moment. Just hang, hang tight. So the stadium is a memorial to the Seattle school alums who died in World War II. So are we tearing down a memorial to dead children to what? For a, to make it uh, prettier? To, uh, to attract the World Cup? What, I think for what? part of it, the idea is that the memorial would have to stay or be maintained somehow. Um, but I think that it, a lot is still left to be determined depending on what proposals they get in. You mean I, that wall will have to I be think, maintained? I think, yes. Because yeah. the wall came later. I mean, it was the stadium itself was built as a memorial. And then a few uh-huh. years, you know, three or four, right? Three or four years later, they added the wall. Uh, not, all, not all historical projects are created equal. Okay. Like, uh, this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is not a pretty stadium. I'm just it's saying not... maybe a memorial shouldn't be something that grows ugly, that is temp that grows decrepit like a stadium. That's what we have walls and plaques sure. for, right? Like that was that was kind of my point uh speaking to some folks earlier was we could turn this statement on its head and say instead of saying this is this was a memorial it's supposed to be for, you know, these students in World War II, we could say this is a memorial. It's supposed to be for the students who died in World War II. Why are we letting it do this? You know, the, I mean, the argument could come around and say we need to do something that lives up to that honor. Oh, we should make it more beautiful exactly. because it's a memorial. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. all right, that's fair. Uh, what else should we know? It's uh, they're going to s- choose a proposal. They say in May. That seems incredibly uh, fast. According to, to the the timeline I just laid out, going back to there's like deals in twenty two thousand nine, two thousand seventeen, and twenty one. May would be like a warp speed. So. Warp speed. Um, you know, the other issue is I mentioned sort of this, the, the downtown school. Um, I don't know if the Seattle School District wants a downtown school right now. I don't think they I don't think they need one. They're in the process of looking at severe budget cuts. And I think there's some mm-hmm. we saw other school districts around the area. They're closing schools. So um, I don't know how that that partnership, how that yoking of those two interests still works. OK, a couple more items on Week in Review before we're done. Some political news this week. We have a governor serving his third term. No one's ever served four in Washington. There are a few Democrats who'd like to take over. One of them, the county executive, King County executive, Dow Constantine, said this week he's not running. Is that because, A, Constantine is passionate about King County, as he says, B, he can't win, C, he knows Jay Inslee is planning to run again and hasn't said so? 
you know, there was an interesting bit in the Seattle Times where I think it was Jim Bruner was or whoever was writing the story was saying that Dow did say that it, he got this impression from Inslee he might run again. And I was like, oh, my, really, really? But I, I think there might be a little bit of saving face from Dow there because it's like the same day or so that he said, oh, to supporters, I'm not going to run for governor, you know, that my heart is with King County or whatever. Um, there was like a really left leaning poll from a left leaning group that's that was like, saying he would only get like 7% of the vote or something. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's not polling well. I'm sure he has internal polls that show something similar. Um, so, it, I don't know. It's just that was timing was a little interesting. In that same poll, uh, Hillary Franz, whose name's also being thrown out there, got the exact same, I think, percentage, 7% or so. And so far, she's saying, oh, I'm thinking about it. I'm honored and I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and, and Bob Ferguson got triple that. Yeah, exactly. Got 21%. So. <laughs> That's the state attorney general. I, I kind of wondered at this point if Bob, if there was, if it were Bob Ferguson and Dow Constantine were running um, for governor, if Bob Ferguson might win King County. I don't know mm. if Bob Ferguson might have a better name in King County than Dow. I mean, he was is. on the King County Council before, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, because he was a King County politician before even doing state level, and state level politicians do have better name recognition. And he's still riding this wave from 2017 where he like took down Trump's travel ban in the media, right, and like sewed over it, and that, so that was where he got a lot of his sort of momentum. And then Inslee announced he's running for a third term, and everyone just stewed for like years more, um, and now. The fourth term, I just don't see it, but um, whatever, fine. Do you feel that would rub voters the wrong way running? I mean, as, as much as if you supported Inslee in the past, a fourth term just might be just a kind of just a bad flavor. Yeah, think- we'd never have a president of the U.S. who's that old, would we? I mean, I mean Inslee is 72. There are older politicians, I, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a reason why term limits is an issue that has, doesn't always totally go away because mm-hmm. there actually is good arguments for getting rid of people. Uh, as you're, you know, particularly in the executive branch after some time, you think about you coming into office with the energy and the backing of a smart group of people behind you, and you're into your third or fourth term, and those people have mostly melted away. And you look at the folks that were in Inslee's first couple terms, everybody's gone. Uh, the Dow Constantine also had an executive team around him, pretty much, pretty much everybody's gone. And so the problem with that is you see problems uh, accrete over time. They, the executive functions of the job get harder and harder. You see this just this year, Dow Constantine is dealing with really kind of mismanagement of the jail. Uh, my my um, colleague, Sidney Brownstone, has really kind of torn that up. Um, you've got, um, you know, Mike Lindblom just wrote about how Metro, Metro Transit um, basically neglected the downtown but, uh, sound transit stations for so long. Um, sound transit had to go in and like, there's no the escalators never work now because Metro didn't maintain them over time. Um, you know, you've got um, – anyway, there's just, there's just sort of these administrative problems that kind of build. And um, I, I think that there is a there is a reason why term limits. You know, not even if I wanted to mount a defense of Dow Constantine, I wouldn't have time because we're, we're, we're coming toward the end of, <laughs> of Week in Review and we haven't talked about olive oil in our coffee. So um, that's the, that's our, that and I want to know what, if anything, made you smile this week. So, Melissa, as of this week, we can drink olive oil in our Starbucks coffee. You tried it. How delicious is it? 
I'm I'm really kind of against this. It, it, it was very, the Starbucks people are very nice. They're very sweet. Like the person who like put this together, these drinks was like talking to me about it, and I'm like, mm-hmm, as I'm drinking them. <laughs> I did not. I just don't think they're two things that go together. Like Howard Schultz, who now is no longer the CEO of Starbucks as of like a few days ago. Um, it's like there's like there's two Italian great traditions you put and they should be together. It's like, but why? Like olive oil is great, <sighs> coffee is great. Why do they need to it's merge? It's the Mediterranean diet. It's, but it's like, why do we Drink, need to like pray, upgrade love. to make everything like, you know, triple Italian-esque or something? Can it's I just ask like, what drink you got? I tried five. That was oh like my a gosh. whole situation. Um, I will say that the if you, if you want to just kind of try it, the, 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 the cafe latte that's warm is like the least... Um, problematic i would say of the ones uh, because when you have olive oil in a cold drink if you have olive oil in a cold drink which most of them are cold drinks it just like it's so strong to me even though they used a fairly mild olive oil compared to like what i tried to whip up at home to kind of approximate it a few weeks earlier um but it's a mild olive oil but you just still taste it so strong in a cold drink um at the same time the you know i went and got a normal latte like right next door from starbucks headquarters um you know right after with oat milk which is what they use and it was just like so much better than the one that had olive oil in it like it's just like it's like this was okay-ish but it's like okay just get the freaking can i use this question why yeah that's what i don't understand why why olive oil and coffee why? they're trying to do a health thing kind of it's like Mediterranean diet. I, I have like a, drink with oat milk too because it's like people want healthy and I'm like but like all these things together just is like why I have a suspicion that might be the an answer and and the answer is the unicorn drink or the fruitcake <laughs> frappuccino uh-huh. or the chili mocha it seems that every every few years Starbucks cranks out something that garners headlines gets us all to talk about it curiously go in and have them brew the cup and maybe it comes back maybe it goes the way of crystal pepsi but it's it's <laughs> it, i ever since this came out and they talked about howard schultz going through italy and sipping spoonfuls of olive oil and said maybe i'll put this in my coffee and before screaming olietto and then <laughs> it, it just felt like branding up yeah. and down and marketing left and right i i I just kind of get that impression from And, it. like, I love that they're like, oleato means with oil. I'm like, so I, I speak a little bit of Italian. It's like, <laughs> the only time you really use oleato with an E is if it's, like, wax paper, carta oleata. And I'm just <laughs> like, okay, cool. I actually pulled some of my Italian friends on this being like, what do you think? And they were, like, universally, like, fosky, like, like, which means, like, gross. It's disgusting. So I don't know. All right. Huh. Have you ever had uh, uh, bulletproof coffee? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I and I don't those. love that, yeah. but the thing is... Is that with butter or... Butter mixes in better than olive oil. Yeah. It just does. I mean, yeah, oil and water, it's a, a- problem. Adding fats to coffee is not new. That's mm-hmm. what cream is. Right. Uh, butter is similar. I put coconut oil in my coffees before. I've, I've done the bulletproof coffee, which also has a similar branding. The founder was hiking through the Himalayas and was so cold, and someone gave him yak butter, and he's like, oh, my gosh, and now we have bulletproof coffee. Mm. Um, it, it, all the branding. But uh, olive oil, I tried it. Like, yeah, I mixed it in with my coffee, and it just didn't hit the same way other fats it's, do when you add them It's just a strong in. flavor as long as it is. It's strong. a very strong flavor. You can't get around that. And then you just have like this vegetable, the, the aftertaste come hits you. If you're like, oh, this is kind of okay. And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, that is a bunch of olive oil in my coffee. Like right afterward. It's like, mm. Okay. I don't like to say this because uh, Dyer has aptly pointed out that I'm we're, I'm kind of being a stooge just by bringing this up <sighs> on the air. It's That's fair. Uh, number one, I thought it sounded gross when I heard. Number two, I thought it sounded like Olestra. <laughs> the fat substitute best known for anal leakage. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that's true. Look it up. 
I made it at home yesterday. Now, granted, I just had a packet of Via for camping, you know, uh-huh. in my camping uh, case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made black coffee. I poured what was in my uh, mm-hmm. cupboard. Uh, I didn't like the sheen on top, the oily yeah. sheen. And the ice shake and coffee. I didn't put this in my review because I was trying to be a little bit like nice and also word count. But there, it has a sh- it, ha- it kind of there's a layer that yes. shows up with the, one of the iced coffees. Like it's not great. Shiny All coffee. of that said, like number one, uh, we love restaurants because they put in the amount of oil we secretly want. We love oil. We so. Why do we? Why are we so grossed out? Like, why do we say oily as an insult when we love oil? Well, it has to blend in the thing, man. It, it, it can't. I mean, if it's yeah. like you know, um, a broken sauce, you know, or something where the fat separates, it's kind of gross. You know what I mean? Like, that's not usually a good thing. But if you, hey, you know. You, you know, you're right. And olive oil is a healthy oil. It's something we should probably use in place of a lot of the other oilers. So for, from here on out, I'm using oily as a positive. As a positive, describe <laughs> things are oily. Because we do, let's admit it, we say that potato chips are salty and candy is sweet, even though we know it's not good for oh, us, yeah. but we don't say, this pad thai is but, delightfully oily. But that's why the restaurant's the full th- of people, because we love oil. This, yeah. And what yeah. I'm building to is that, to my surprise, as gross-sounding as I thought it was, I actually kind of enjoyed my olive oil All coffee. Right. I will say, so, so this health thing with the Starbucks thing, they literally are putting like gelato, basically, on some of these drinks on top. Like One of them is like, Literally, I don't know. They have this like foam thing they do now, which I don't even know about. But it's like literally like gelato mixed with the olive oil. So it's like, how healthy are we being with this? Really? Okay, fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I accept that some people may like it. I yeah, find the flavors course. not complimentary. All Fair right. enough. Fine. Fair enough. Okay, we've got two minutes left in the show. Um, uh, I want to leave you something to smile about. I, I will get, begin and go through this fast. There's something comforting uh, in ritual to me. Cause we're always covering what's new on Week in Review. I, but I kind of like ritual, especially when it's poop-related. And if you're <laughs> new to the Puget Sound region, uh, that's a second poop reference, by the way, in the next last five minutes. If you're new to here, you don't know that every spring Woodland Park Zoo sells compost from giraffe crap. And, and oh, you know, zebras yeah. and hippos and the bedding in their cages and the zoo's compost manager makes a show of it. I am the Prince of Pooh, the emperor of excrement, third world leader, the GM of BM, the master of microbes, the Duke of Dung. And I know these are dad jokes, but every year when you have the captain of Kaka presiding over the fecal <laughs> fest and it's good for your garden and the circle of life, it, it, there's something reassuring until you notice that animals are in cages producing this stuff, granted, but that's my that made made me smile that Zudu is back. Anybody else? I'm just, I'm starting raised bed gardens, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Use it uh, real quick. I guess th- this week was the hundredth birthday of Marcel Marceau. He would have been a hundred years old this week, mm-hmm. and if you don't know who that is, go. Check out some old Marcel Marceau. He's one of the world's most famous mimes, and he always brings a smile. And then you learn his story and learn that the first time he started miming was when he was helping save Jewish children from concentration camps and needed to help them be quiet. And what? so he, wow. he, he, he did that during World War II. He was, he was uh, helping people get to neutral territory. So it'll, it'll bring a smile to your face. Happy birthday, Marcel Marceau. Good stuff. My goodness. Do you have a lot more deep stuff than I yeah, do no um, over Man. here? Well, we only have 45 I'm gonna, I'm gonna, seconds. I'm going to so. find another I'm just amused by that I'm trying to teach my three-year-old to ride a bike and he keeps stopping to pick wildflowers flowers wildflowers which is kind of adorable but like also not bike riding but okay cool yeah daffodils are up for your kid very cute yeah I'll I'll embrace the uh 
unadulterated fun of March Madness. Uh, okay. I've been watching a ton of basketball, including a great game last night with Gonzaga, Gonzaga. and UCLA. Yeah. Um, that was absolutely a blast and, for me, very much not work and a total <laughs> different headspace. Yeah. Gonzaga advances to the Elite Eight. Good luck. Uh, and thank you for coming. Thanks for being a great show. KUOW's Dyer Oxley, Seattle Times Investigations Editor Jonathan Martin, Axio Seattle Reporter Melissa Santos. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you to producer Kevin, Kevin Kinestad, to Juan Pablo Chiquiza, Tio Popescu, Bernard Wellat running the board. And we'll see you again a week from now. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.